I'm Mark Huddle, Associate Professor of History and Director of Georgia College's Center for Georgia Studies. This is the latest conversation in the Center's ongoing radio collaboration with WRGC 88.3, Milledgeville's National Public Radio Station. In November 2016, Donald Trump shocked the nation and the world by defeating Hillary Clinton, the first woman to be nominated for the presidency by a major party. In the inevitable and seemingly endless election postmortems, the narrative that initially emerged centered on the demographic of angry white men struggling in the face of global economic transformation, falling further and further behind, and desperate for any candidate who signaled any sort of change. Those voters embraced Trump's populist message and his hyper-nationalism in huge numbers. But as the smoke cleared, another perhaps more troubling set of statistics emerged. Rather than rallying to embrace the woman who looks set to make history as the first female president, 46% of the women who voted in the 2016 election voted for Mr. Trump. This in spite of campaign pronouncements that were overtly racist and a misogyny that was driven home by the release of the infamous Access Hollywood tape. Even more stunning was the fact that among white women, Trump beat Clinton by 10 percentage points, 53 to 43%. Fast forward to December 2017 and the Alabama special election for the United States Senate. The Democratic candidate Doug Jones narrowly defeated the Republican Roy Moore. Moore was dogged throughout the campaign by charges of pedophilia and scrutiny of a career that was marked by a spate of racist pronouncements. This was the sort of political baggage that would have buried just about any political candidate, and yet Jones barely eked out a victory. The backbone of Moore's support? Again, white women. Moore outpolled Jones in that demographic by a whopping 29%, winning 63 to 34%. Analysts across the media landscape all struggle with the same questions. What's wrong with white women? Where was this support for conservative, and white supremacist politics coming from. Almost on cue, our guest, Dr. Elizabeth Gillespie McRae, Associate Professor of History at Western Carolina University, offered some cold hard facts to answer those questions. In op-eds published in the Washington Post, in the New York Times, and now in her brand new book, Mothers of Massive Resistance, White Women and the Politics of White Supremacy, published just last month by Oxford University Press, Dr. McRae tears down older narratives of white supremacy, stories that have been contingent on white male-dominated discourses about politics and gender, and moved women to the center of our political historical analysis. So many women are supporting our contemporary politics of white supremacy because, frankly, they always have. In a study covering the period that runs from the First World War to the Boston busing crisis of the 1970s, McRae shows in painstaking detail that it was often white women at the local level who were at the front lines of policing, shaping, and defending white supremacist ideas and Jim Crow institutions. If our images of that politics are male-driven, cross burnings, fire and brimstone speeches, or standing in schoolhouse doorways, McRae's Mothers of Massive Resistance teaches us that letter-writing campaigns, copying parties, and precinct gatherings were just as essential, maybe even more so, to the maintenance of segregation in the South and the establishment of national conservative political networks. These day-to-day -day chores were in many ways lost in the archives, but it is, as Libby McRae wisely put it in her Washington Post piece, the mundane and the persistent that make movements. Libby, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. This is a treat. Well, let's begin at the beginning. What is it that drew you to the topic of white women and white supremacy? I was interested in the civil rights movement and issues of educational equality and racial equality. And when I looked at the literature when I started in graduate school, the white women that were featured in that literature were the white women who 
supported the black freedom struggle. And the books that had been written about white women related to the civil rights movement had mostly highlighted those white women who collaborated with black grassroots activists. But when you looked at the photographic evidence of Little Rock or the integration of William France Elementary School in New Orleans or even pictures from Freedom Riders disembarking off buses and meeting angry crowds, there's white women protesting, yelling, angry, and most of them seem like regular white women. I mean, they seem like your neighbors and people that had just dropped their kids off at school and had then turned into these sort of defenders of racial segregation and white supremacist politics. And so I started to look to try to find their story because there seemed to be a lot more of them than the Virginia Durs or Ann Bradens or um, the women that were working with the civil rights activists. And I was interested in the limitations of the civil rights movement and how women had played a role in maintaining some of the structures of segregation and white supremacist politics in local communities. The title of your book mentions massive resistance. Can you give listeners a brief description of what that was and tell us how historians have traditionally thought of that period and how your study reformulates and reconceptualizes the politics of massive resistance? Massive resistance, in general terms, is the period after the Brown decision and prior to the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. So somewhere between 1954 and 1964, and probably the peak would have been 55 to 60, maybe even into the 62 or 63. But this was the period of organized massive resistance, generally referred to organized white resistance to the civil rights movement and to black grassroots political activism. So to the sit-ins, to school integration. And as the story goes, it appears after the Brown decision, after the decision to desegregate the nation's schools, and disappears with the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act at sort of the latest. And so when people talk about massive resistance, that's generally what they're talking about. And this is the era of George Wallace and of Governor Ross Barnett and newspaper editors condemning school integration. So that's, I think, traditionally what massive resistance has meant. Your book really challenges that periodization. Yes. So... I think it has clouded as much as it has revealed because the idea that resistance appeared sort of whole cloth in the aftermath of the Brown decision would suggest a reactionary politics that didn't have deep organizational roots. And I just was suspicious of that fact. And so I think massive resistance should be understood, and I argue this in the book, as this long period of white grassroots support and organizational efforts to maintain racial segregation. And if we look at that, then what changes with the Brown decision is the threat to racial segregation, not the grassroots support for it. So before the 50s, what we might have called it was massive support for racial segregation, but it's the same sort of institutions and grassroots organizations that uphold racial segregation prior to the Brown decision that foment this resistance after the Brown decision. So I felt like the chronology disguised the deep, depth and breadth of white resistance to the civil rights movement, and I also thought it limited the geography. Massive resistance is often 
understood to be a particularly Southern phenomenon, and it doesn't help explain the white resistance to racial equality that we see nationally and that we see white Southerners building networks across the nation for this kind of politics. So the ideas in the politics are in play well before that 1954 to 1964 period. It's the context and the, the circumstances that change with the Brown decision that historians have sort of latched onto ever since. Right. Ending it in 64, we're left thinking that the protest over busing in the 70s is somehow categorically different than the protest about school integration in the 50s and 60s. And certainly there are differences, but as many African Americans said during the busing crisis, it's not the bus, it's us, that the problem was that the bus would lead to integrated schools, that the bus was not really the focus of the protest. You're listening to a special conversation between historians Mark Huddle and Elizabeth McRae. They're talking about McRae's new book, The Mothers of Mass Resistance, White Women in the Politics of White Supremacy. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back with more of this special presentation by Georgia College's Center for Georgia Studies and WRGC 88.3 FM. So much of the book is about grassroots politics, the ways that, that women moved into the political sphere to police the boundaries of their, of their communities. Um, mm-hmm. And while they may have cited history and tradition as motivation, a lot of this political expression was shaped by the forces of modernization. For instance, in the early period that you look at just after the First World War, the expansion of state power during the Progressive Era, how did women capitalize on the politics of reform-minded progressivism to push their political agendas? With progressivism came women and many white women moving in to government and kind of public positions in health, in criminal justice, in reform schools. So the progressive era opened space for, in my case, white women to move in to these kind of bureaucratic roles as the state expanded its power. And those roles, while Oftentimes when we look at the progressive era, we think of it as a moment that expanded women's opportunities, and it did, and expanded the state into areas of social and public welfare, which it did. Many of those reforms also reinforced the system of racial segregation. And so the women that found themselves with these new roles also worked for the state that upheld racial segregation. So, for example, in Virginia, they passed in 1924 the Racial Integrity Act, which required midwives and local registrars in communities who were granting marriage licenses to record the racial identity of the people that they were serving. And many of these local registrars were women. It wasn't a full-time job, so you could do that on the side. Someone could come to you, and they could register with you, and you would turn that into the local courthouse. And then most of the babies delivered in the 1920s were delivered by midwives. And so midwives were now required to turn in on the birth certificates the racial identity of the children that they delivered. And they were asked to make these judgments based on a host of very non-scientific factors. So the last names, who the people associated with, whether they had rumors of being white, black, or Indian. And so in this way, women's roles that had gotten state sanction by the progressive era ask them to uphold racial segregation, and many of them do. 
Well, I think there is an attempt to apply what was considered to be the cutting-edge racial science of that period to give it the imprimatur of scientific justification that it wasn't this sort of arbitrary and random labeling of Mm -hmm. people. Yes, but so in this case in Virginia, I have public officers, social workers or school superintendents or nurses writing to the officials in Richmond and saying, how is it that we determine race? And the head of the Bureau of Vital Statistics writes back and says there's no scientific way to determine race. So what you need to do is look at this list of last names that we associate with non-white families, and you need to listen to community rumor and see who they hang out with and how clean they keep their houses, and that will help you determine what race is. So even though there is this facade of race science, the very people who are peddling it admit in writing that there's nothing scientific to help them determine race. It strikes me that registrars at the, the most local level had this incredible amount of power, whether they understood it that way or not. And right. I think if you look back even all the way into the period of Reconstruction in a period of very fluid race relations, you know, I've seen it over and over and over again. The person who has that position is the gatekeeper. Mm-hmm. And as it's applied to race, then it becomes the ability to, to almost create identity for any number right. of people. Right. And in the counties I look at in Virginia, there was a older population that sometimes people referred to as triracial. So this population of people who were had long been recognized as having most likely slave, Native American, and a quite traitor ancestors. But with the progressive era and with the 1920s, they could no longer maintain that identity in the face of the law and in the face of these local registrars and of school teachers who had known them, right, and knew their history and had known them all their lives, yet were forced to sort of put them either in a black or white category. And if you were Native American, you moved into that black category in Virginia in this time period. So I think it's irrelevant to me whether they did it because they were deeply committed to white supremacy or whether they were trying to be good social workers or whether they were rule followers. The outcome for the people was the same, right? The outcome for the families that they dictated were black or white was the same, whatever their intent was. So the work produced the identity and and hardened the racial lines. Well, my motivation for asking these very specific questions, especially for listeners who might not know the you know, the intricacies of, of this history, is that you know, race is a function of power in the society. And right. how does it work? You know, how does it look at, at very specific moments? And in particular, you know, what we're talking about, it, it, especially with your book, is the way that this politics replicates itself and mutates and is transformed over a broad period of American history when race relations are being challenged, racial categories are being challenged. Mm -hmm. As much as it changes, a remarkable kind of continuity between the way that this politics played out in the 1920s and the way that it is playing out currently. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a Georgia connection, and as the director yes. of the Center for Georgia Studies, I feel that I must draw that out. One of the prime battlegrounds, uh, and again, I guess in a, in a weird way, the, the more things change, the more they stay the same, but you know, one of the <laughs> battlegrounds in the 20s and 30s and, and beyond was public education and specifically textbooks. Who was Mildred Lewis Rutherford? Mildred Lewis Rutherford ran the Lucy Cobb Institute in Athens, Georgia. So she was an educator. 
And she was also really involved in the United Daughters of the Confederacy and in the efforts in the teens and 20s to reinscribe kind of a Confederate history on the New South, and in particular to make sure that public education upheld the Jim Crow order. And so as an educator and also as a really important worker in the um, United Daughters of the Confederacy, Mildred Rutherford spent the last decade of her life dedicated to creating a public education that upheld white supremacy. What are the legacies of that work? You know, the battle over textbooks is ongoing. I get emails about these questions all the time. But there was something a little bit redundant, maybe, about how she wanted, for instance, the South to be portrayed in textbooks, because wasn't it already being portrayed that way? (laughs) Yes, yes. The the battle had already been won um, in public textbooks, but that was the only goal, right? Then her effort would be, I think, completely redundant. But... The Jim Crow order, racial segregation, had to be constantly reinforced, and she understood that generationally it had to be taught. It had to be taught that it means these things to be white, and that in the South, whiteness came with these privileges, and and blackness came with these particular restrictions. And so... While the fight to get the Southern story told in textbooks, like a pro-Confederate, pro-white Confederate history portrayed in the textbooks, had already been accomplished, I think Rutherford realizes that each generation is going to have to have that fight. They're, They're going to need to make sure that the history that's being taught to their children reinforces the social political and economic order that they're living in. And so she would encourage her readers and her students to make sure that the school's textbooks called it the war between the states instead of the Civil War, and that slaves were referred to as servants rather than slaves, and that the history of Reconstruction would continue to be told in a way that upheld white Confederates and diminished the political accomplishments of African Americans. And so by telling, you know, the generation in the 20s, the parents that they need to go do this and they need to have essay contests that give their students a chance to show off their knowledge about Confederate history, I think what she was doing is cultivating a kind of grassroots army that would go out and make sure that Jim Crow segregation was upheld in the intellectual world that their students were being trained in. So it wasn't that you had to change the textbook. You just had to make sure to train people to always be vigilant about what was in the textbooks and what their students were learning. You're listening to a special conversation between historians Mark Huddle and Elizabeth McRae. They're talking about McRae's new book, The Mothers of Mass Resistance, White Women in the Politics of White Supremacy. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back with more of this special presentation by Georgia College's Center for Georgia Studies and WRGC 88.3 FM. know in our line of work that really in the middle 1940s we start to see the first revisionist histories especially reconstruction but I as a 56 year old I'm from Ohio I still have very sharp memories of my fifth grade social studies book which included 
a description of Reconstruction that Mildred Lewis Rutherford would have been all about. It was combined with a really shockingly negative image. You know, this is probably 1970, 1971. Right. So the impact of that politics has national implications over over a long period of time. Well, and the weird thing about the South was, given its sort of opposition to government centralization, is Southern states were some of the first to go to statewide textbook adoption, which meant that national textbook publishing houses began to tailor their textbooks to the Southern market because they were guaranteed sales. And so then the books that everyone got, even you in Ohio, right, were dictated, right, I mean, maybe not in the 70s, but from an early period, were dictated by where you were guaranteed the most sales. And statewide textbook adoption meant that you had a better contract, right, if you contracted with the state of Georgia, because then you had all the Georgia schools or Mississippi. So Mississippi is one of the first states that goes to state centralization of textbooks. And I argue that it's part of this effort to sort of reinforce this Jim Crow education. And even today, it's Texas and California, right? right? Like, they dictate what's in our textbooks. Right. Your book challenges, I think, almost every notion that we might have of of gender essentialism in American politics. You know, that, (laughs) that, that women are apt to vote a certain way on certain issues simply because they're women. But I think you have to really giving it a close reading, if there's anything essential in what you're describing, it's, it's in fact the messiness of this politics. Under the broad umbrella of white supremacy, there is surprising diversity of political points of view. And as we move into the 1930s and 1940s, you can see women who are expressing themselves politically, expressing them in ways that are meant to buttress the system of Jim Crow and of white supremacy. And they're doing it as New Deal Democrats. They're doing it as political liberals. They're doing it as states' rights Democrats that reject federal intervention. But they all are able to make common cause under this white supremacist umbrella. What is the lesson from that? I mean, what does that teach us? First of all, that they could have so many partisan affiliations means that white supremacy, white supremacist politics was endemic to national partisan politics. So in the 30s, you could be a Republican or a states' right Democrat or a New Deal Democrat, and your belief in white supremacist politics was not going to be fundamentally challenged by any of those partisan groups or political ideologies. And so in one way, I think we have to begin to wrestle in the 30s is the, a good place to do it with the fact that not only could white Southern women maintain all these diverse partisan politics and be white supremacist, but people across the nation could do that. That there was broad agreement at some level, even though clearly there's resistance, and I don't mean to minimize that, but that's not what this book is about, is not about that resistance to white supremacist politics. So I think that's one lesson that we can take. I think also in a maybe darker kind of thread is that white women were in broad agreement about an adherence to white supremacist politics and upholding racial segregation. I'm not saying all but that there was this sort of broad agreement. And so what you see is women arguing about all sorts of things and white women having all diverse opinions on the New Deal and on prohibition and all of that, but also all working in various different ways to uphold various iterations of racial segregation. So where the the disagreement then is really where the threat is coming from? I mean, that, that ultimately kind of determines their the ground, political ground they're standing on, and then right. that's what ends up shifting over, over a broad period of time. 
Right, right. So for my Delta woman, Florence Sellers Ogden, the New Deal was not a threat to she, racial segregation in the Delta. Well, she, in and fact, she was they got a, money. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I mean, they made money. Her family made money from the New Deal, from the Agricultural Adjustment Act. It kept them afloat, and um, the federal money that they were given, they were allowed to distribute to their black sharecroppers however they saw fit, which meant they didn't see fit <laughs> to distribute very much of it at all. So for her, the New Deal was not a threat at all um, to white supremacist politics. So, so class status, in a sense, determines Florence Sillers Ogden's position. Mm -hmm. But maybe you could talk a little bit about Mary Dawson Kane then, right? Because she was coming from a very different part of Mississippi, isn't she? Right, right. Well, what was her politics? Well, she's a, of the sort of women that I write about that kind of produce these white supremacist politics um, over time. She was the most deeply conservative and always the furthest on the right. So um, she came not from the privileged um, place of the Delta, right, from a sort of planner class, but she did come, she came from, it's timber country where she came from, and she was a newspaper publisher and a newspaper writer, and early on, she was a New Deal Democrat. She was one of the first people in her county that had a blue eagle outside her um, newspaper offices. But when Roosevelt, um, when the anti-lynching legislation begins to be debated in Congress and is brought up, um, at that point, Mary Dawson Kane um, shifts away from the um, New Deal Democrats and calls herself a Jeffersonian Democrat, which means she's like a believer in states' rights. And her argument um, from then on will be about the state control of everything, right? Just like, um, and so I think her politics, and she will be, um, she'll be on the far right, whatever the far, whatever iteration the far right is at, at the particular points in her life, she will be there. So she's more ideologically rigid than maybe some of my other women. And before we move on, I think we have to talk about Cornelia Dabney Tucker. Cornelia Dabney Tucker might be one of the wackier characters in the story, <laughs> and yet she's also one of the more prophetic in that she seems to mm -hmm. see what's going to happen as far as the trajectory of partisan politics in the, in the 30s and 40s. She's seeing it almost yes. before anybody else does. Yes. So she's fascinating, right? She tells her own story of being very apolitical until she's at a dinner party, and they're all talking about Roosevelt expanding the Supreme Court. And everyone's resigned to it. It's the story she tells. And she leaves committed to honoring the Constitution and keeping the Supreme Court at the same, with the same number of justices and begins this national campaign. And she is a force of nature. I mean, she petitions every day and her like gift to you if you decide to uphold her position is that you won't get daily petitions, right? I mean, that is like, guess what? We'll stop lobbying you if you will agree to this. And, and in the midst of that, her segregationist politics are pretty muted. They're there, but they're pretty muted. But early on, she begins to try to move away from what is a New Deal Democratic Party in the South. And rather than remaining a Democrat, she takes over the Republican Party. There's not that many of them, but the Republican Party in South Carolina, which had been a interracial party and makes it lily white in the late 1930s and then begins to push for the secret ballot so that Republican candidates can actually have a stake in South Carolina's elections. And she realizes early on the way to sort of market what she wants nationally is to mute the overtness of her racial politics. 
And so she's an early purveyor of what we later call like color bond politics. She realizes that you can't scream the things that are being screamed and build this national conservative coalition. And she was a business conservative as well, right? She wants to promote South Carolina and promote businesses in Charleston to outside investors. And she spends some time in the Northeast with her campaigns so that businesses can come south and invest and still vote for the Republican Party. And they can't do that in South Carolina until 1952. Cause you have to pick a ballot. So you can't vote a split ticket in South Carolina. And so her business conservatism propels her partisan shifts, too. So here is a woman who is championing partisan realignment a decade before the Dixiecrat Rebellion. Right. And probably another 15 years before the Southern Democratic wave into the Republican Party really begins in, in earnest. Right. You're listening to a special conversation between historians Mark Huddle and Elizabeth McRae. They're talking about McRae's new book, The Mothers of Mass Resistance, White Women in the Politics of White Supremacy. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back with more of this special presentation by Georgia College's Center for Georgia Studies and WRGC 88.3 FM. One of the things that I was thinking as I as I read the book was poor Eleanor Roosevelt, <laughs> which, which I know is kind of stupid because, you know, Eleanor gave as good as she got politically, but she is a lightning rod for the women in your study. Yes. Was, was it her symbolism that drew the ire of white female conservatives? Was it her policy positions? Was it a combination of both of these things? I think it's a combination, but for the women I write about, not only like the ones who are writing newspaper columns, but I think it's kind of everyday women, even school children will write Eleanor Roosevelt and condemn her for crossing the color line. And so it is her racial politics for them that is the source of all there are. So they obsessively follow her column, My Day. And so when she writes about going to graduation for these nurses who are trained in the hospital in Harlem, they're like, that's great. That's queenly condescension. You can go see these people who've been trained graduate. But then Eleanor Roosevelt writes about how she goes back to their homes of their families and has dinner. And that is the moment that many white Southern women can't take. And then when she comes to Salisbury, North Carolina, and is going to don at Livingston College as part of her WCA work, the white women in Salisbury, not one of them will host the First Lady. And she gets on the train and goes back to Washington to see that night. And so I think every time she upsets what they see as the color line, she becomes condemned. So much so that Mary Dawson Kane blames the riots in Detroit in 1943 on Eleanor Roosevelt. Well, there's also this sort of deep-seated psychology in play. You know, maybe you could share with us a, a little of your research on the Eleanor Clubs and the rumors of race that were swirling across the South in this period. So the Eleanor Clubs are supposedly these underground clubs populated by black domestic servants who have been inspired by Eleanor Roosevelt to change the racial hierarchy of the South. And I think it's interesting that by calling them Eleanor Clubs, it means that Eleanor Roosevelt is the um, main impetus, not low wages, not a wartime economy that offered black men and women better jobs elsewhere, paying hundreds of percent higher in wages. 
that the real problem was that Eleanor Roosevelt had crossed these lines of segregation and that she had inspired people to do the same. By white women talking about these Eleanor clubs, it shows their fears of black women in the South, but it also diminishes the very reason black women would have been organizing and makes it sort of they're following in the footsteps of Eleanor Roosevelt. And I think it points, too, to how tenuous white women thought the racial hierarchy was, that a white woman dining with African-Americans or socializing with in interracial settings could upset a system that they were working so hard to maintain. And that Eleanor Roosevelt herself was the catalyst for this revolution, I guess. I mean, yeah, for everything. (laughs) I mean, if the idea behind the Eleanor Club is that black servants are going to force their white employers to serve them, it's a rumor of revolutionary intent that's somehow attributed to the First Lady of the United States. Right. As if black women who are working in white homes didn't have their own reasons to wish for a kind of economic revolution and social revolution that would shift their place in society, that they had to look to Eleanor Roosevelt to sort of educate them about that. But when soldiers come back from war and are socializing in interracial settings, school children in Louisiana say, I'm never going to go to school with black children. Well, that's not even on the radar yet. It doesn't, it's on their radar, clearly. But Eleanor Roosevelt has not stood up for integrated education at this point. And yet these school children understand that that kind of socializing means a change to every. They think it means a change to everything about racial segregation. World War II is this real catalyst for change. Yes. The, the civil rights struggle in many ways, at least to my analysis, it begins with World War II. There, there's a mm-hmm. national mm-hmm. political agenda that begins to coalesce during the war. And to me, what we're kind of describing here is, is a reaction to that. I, I guess what I would like us to kind of talk about briefly now is, is how the war, and in particular the immediate post-war period, the United States has you know, emerged triumphant liberal internationalism as best symbolized by the United Nations is in the ascendant. What is the impact that it has on this sort of political organizing on the ground in the South? So the first part of the book, which is from the 1920s and the 1930s, there is such a diversity in white women's political expressions, in part because racial segregation seems to have all the allies the federal government, the textbook publishing houses, the New Deal, right? The systems you need to make sure that segregation is sustained all seem on the side of the segregationist. And so, right, you can say, this is great. We need to be better segregationists and make sure that our institutions are really separate and also equal, which some liberal segregationists would adopt, right? Like, we need to build better hospitals and better schools and pay black teachers more. But World War II, for the women I write about, they see that there are new threats to racial segregation. And Eleanor Roosevelt embodies one of those threats. But the Democratic Party, more generally, begins to hear, at least, and express um, some commitment for a more racially equitable society. And whether it's political opportunism or not, um, these women see that Franklin Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt, is how they talk about it, and the Democratic Party have begun to pull away from their unceasing support of racial segregation. And then closely on the heels of that will be this commitment to internationalism, which has so much to do with decolonization campaigns, 
in Africa and Asia, that the white women now recognize that an international oriented policy means that, I mean, I hate to use this word, but like white power in the United States is going to be diminished by nations that we begin to have diplomatic relations with that aren't white. And the UN sort of embodies this organization that is a threat to national sovereignty, they think, and it's a threat to national sovereignty because it might reorder the racial hierarchy they're so committed to maintaining. There is this perception that the UN will somehow stand above the Constitution, that the United Nations as as an institution can actually reach into American life and change the social structure in some way, which makes it threatening to to the segregationist order. And then you have the kind of unfortunate examples of that, like the UNESCO textbook, which gets right at a lot of the anxieties and fears Mm -hmm. that are being Mm -hmm. expressed. You're listening to a special conversation between historians Mark Huddle and Elizabeth McRae. They're talking about McRae's new book, The Mothers of Mass Resistance, White Women in the Politics of White Supremacy. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back with more of this special presentation by Georgia College's Center for Georgia Studies and WRGC 88.3 FM. As the civil rights movement begins to unfold, there is a a kind of growing effort, I think, by the women that you're writing about to establish a broader set of national political connections. What ultimately drives that? I mean, they lack the institutional support of, say, the Democratic Party, and yet they begin to build a network that's actually national. They take their ideas to other regions of the country, other markets. Right. That's rooted in World War II as well, right? The diaspora out of the South in World War II was not just black Southerners, right? So white Southerners left too and took with them their commitment to particular social, economic, and political systems. And not to say that white supremacy is just an import to other regions of the country from the South, but I think what you then had were white women and men who'd been active in their communities in the South who now go to Southern California or to Chicago or Detroit and find kindred spirits. But opposition to the UN became a particularly rich moment to build these national networks. So if you're in the South and you're a white segregationist woman, you can say the genocide treaty that the UN is asking that we adopt means that if your white husband defends you from a black man's sexual aggression, that he's going to be accused of genocide. That's like a story that's told over and over again. But outside of the South, in Pasadena, California, for example, groups of white women there could say, well, what the UNESCO curriculum material is doing is diminishing American exceptionalism and is trying to replace the values that we have with multicultural values. So they can find national allies and build national networks on their opposition to the UN and talk about it different ways in different places. So I was stunned by the sort of breadth of these national networks of women on the right. And so I think they're not isolated. Their national networks only grow stronger as they experiment with different ways to oppose a weakening of white supremacist politics. The UN is one. The Supreme Court will be another. You make a very interesting narrative choice at the end of the book. You have sort of relentlessly built this, I mean that with all respect, you relentlessly argued this, and then the conclusion of the book moves to Boston, and and the busing 
crisis of the early 1970s. Why did you make that choice? What does Boston teach us about the politics that's teased out in your story? The first reason I made the choice is the women I'd been studying in the South keep saying, wait till the North has to integrate their schools and they're going to act just like we do. And I'm like, really? And so the obvious expression of white women's opposition to busing, or the most public, right? Boston's the easiest place to go. It had the most national coverage. Maybe it was the most dramatic. And so I sort of followed these women's predictions and went to Boston to see what these Boston women did. Not just what the newspapers said they did, but an impetus. I looked at the letters they wrote to the judge who had forced busing to happen because Boston had been so slow in creating racially balanced schools. I mean, they'd had well over a decade to do this by the time Judge Garrity issued his busing decisions. And so when I went to look at what these white women were doing, it was very similar. They asked George Wallace to come campaign. They asked the Klan into their homes. They had circles of mothers that would meet at night and plan what they were going to do the next day. They created organizations that sounded really innocuous, like improvement associations that were about maintaining racially segregated schools. And they kept saying that it wasn't, they weren't like the South. We never made anybody sit in the back of a bus. Right, We're different than white Southerners. But in the end, it didn't seem to me, and I'm sure that lots of people have different um, takes on this, and the angriest letters I got from my New York Times piece were from Bostonians. They, they didn't seem that different. I mean, what they wanted in the end was segregated schools. Now, not completely segregated, right? There'd been some integration, but they wanted to maintain what they believed was the racial integrity of their schools. And that didn't seem to me categorically different. Well, certainly, you know, tactically and strategically, the overlap between what you describe over this long period in the South and what is happening in Boston in the 1970s are strikingly similar. I mean, the tactics that they're using when those don't work, it, there is an incredible level of violence in the streets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or when those tactics don't work, they stand outside school playgrounds and yell racial obscenities at the children on the playground. You can say that it's not about race, but when you're yelling that, it seems like that is one of your considerations. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know how you get around that. And so the notion that it, this was just based on their class position, I just didn't find that that convincing. Well, let me finish with this. One of the things that you comment on in your Washington Post piece that I think is really important for people to think about is that by moving Southern white women to the center of the story, to understanding the role that they played, by getting at this sort of mundane day-to-day trench warfare that's going on at the local level, it should change the questions that we are asking ourselves about white women today, right? I mean, I think the direct quote is their history should lead us to ask different questions today, questions that are not laced with surprise about white women supporting conservatives like Trump or more. So what questions should we be asking? I think we should be asking questions in our communities about social justice and what forces are at play that erode equal opportunity. And we have to look hard. I think we have to look at institutions that are replicating systems of privilege and of inequity. And I would suggest you look at where women are working and you will find out where those are. 
no, not all women, but the fights about public education are still critically important. The fights about access to public health in our communities are critically important. The fights about the curriculum that our students are learning, I think these are the places that are often where these systems can be sustained that for whatever reason, people aren't paying attention to. And I think we have to stop expecting that women are somehow going to vote for more enlightened or progressive candidates. I think it's an odd expectation. I have it, so I have to discard it, but it's an odd expectation that women shouldn't have voted for Roy Moore. I, I don't know why men would have voted for Roy Moore. And so, like, why does anyone want to elect someone who trolls malls for young girls? I, I, I don't, like, I can't get my head around that. And so making that sort of a gendered politics doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Libby McRae, thank you very much for being with us today. We appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Thank you for having me. In so many ways, we are the sum of all the stories we tell ourselves about the world. That's how we make sense of the complexities of our experience. Even in this great age of information, where some semblance of knowledge is just a few keystrokes away, our impulse is to seek out knowledge that confirms what we already think we know. We're all, at some level, the conjurers of myths that serve to buttress our particular version of the status quo. The best intellectual work, books like Elizabeth McRae's Mothers of Massive Resistance, shines a bright light on all that myth-making. Part of the power of McRae's timely intervention is that it brushes aside simplistic notions that we are somehow living through a period of upheaval in American life that is unique or unprecedented so many of the answers to our contemporary problems are right there in front of us, staring us in the face, but by choice or ignorance, we can't see or hear them. Race and racism are functions of power in American life and run deep in the marrow of our national tradition. They're measures of the distance between the high ideals of the American experiment and the lived experience of our daily lives. Should we really be surprised that McRae's conservative white women were and are culpable in a system of oppression? Of course not. And we need to ask ourselves how we could believe it could be otherwise. We need to let go of our stories about how we wish the world would be and accept how the world really is. The study of the past is hard and it's unrelenting. The most difficult questions more often than not lead us to the next set of difficult questions. It's like repeatedly picking the scab off of a wound. But then if we're all working towards a world in which we're more than just members of warring tribes, a world that is more hopeful, a little less conflicted and contentious, then we have to begin from a place of honesty, own the past, own who we are as people, only then can we begin working towards a more just world. And we can do so from a position of substance rather than the shaky ground of some self-serving mythology. The truth, my friends, shall set you free. You've been listening to the latest collaboration between Georgia College's Center for Georgia Studies and WRGC 88.3, Milledgeville's NPR station. I'm Mark Huddle, and thanks for tuning in.